Welcome in to the 48 Minutes Podcast on Belief, presented by Bet Online. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media and World B Michael Freer. Tonight, we've got a very exciting special guest joining us. Monica McNutt of ESPN <laughs> is here with us in the house for episode number 79, which is the John Conley episode, as Conley has officiated over 50 NBA games throughout his two seasons in the NBA. One quick fun fact on John is that he started his officiating, officiating career with his mother in a men's 40 and over basketball league. So job well done there, John. Before we get any further, we do have um, some notes here, and that is that the holiday season is off and rolling with NFL in full stride and the NBA and NHL hitting midseason form. BetOnline is your number one destination for all your sports wagering info. With the minute sports wagering news, odds, trends, and predictions, BetOnline is the top spot for everything pro and amateur sports. And not just with the big four, BetOnline has info available at your fingertips with both desktop and mobile access anytime for almost any sport that's played, from MMA to international soccer. Head to BetOnline today and remember to use our promo code BELIEVE, that is B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. And tonight, I'll start with Bruce doing the honors for Monica. Monica McNutt is a baller <laughs> and a queen. She's also a badass, a brilliant analyst, and funny as hell. You see her everywhere. ESPN uses her as a positionless player, NBA analyst, sideline reporter, NBA expert, studio host, debater, around the horn panelist, WNBA expert, college hoop analyst, radio personality. Did I leave anything out? That's like eight <laughs> positions, Monica. She's also a fixture on MSG Network in New York, where she worked with Bill Pito and the studio team on the Knicks games, and she's been named as the game analyst for the Knicks on their radio network. In fact, when he gets back from his illness, soon Monica and friend of the show, Ed Cohen, will be working together, which is going to be dope. Monica and I worked together on Pure Hoops Media, where we did a podcast called Buckets, Boards, and Blocks for two and a half years, 126 shows, but who's counting? Many, <laughs> many when there were no games to talk about. Mm-hmm. It was the height of the pandemic and the George Floyd killing and the aftermath, but Monica always had the right instincts on what was relevant, and we really learned a lot from each other and our guests. She's probably very sick already of listening to me talk about her, so <laughs> hey, Monica. Hi, Bruce. It's good to be back with you. Hey, Ross. Hey, Michael. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, Monica, thank you so much for joining us. So let's go ahead and get right into some things here, starting with our first quarter. Obviously, it's been uh, a big week in the NBA. First, I'd like to get your thoughts on just the overall in-season tournament idea. Um, Are you a fan or uh, are you still trying to learn to love this uh, new tournament? I think, Ross, I'm pleasantly surprised. I think it's been a success and I would call myself a fan. Fairweather fan, maybe, but a fan nonetheless of the in-season tournament. I do think that the energy around regular season games in November and December on Tuesdays and Fridays is undeniable. And while I can't quite tell if there was an internal memo to players, they have certainly been saying the right things when asked about it. I was personally surprised by how many of the big name guys were into it. And practically, that may just have to deal with the opportunity to sell this thing down the road as the NBA rights come up. But they seem to be into it. And I have said, I did say at the beginning, um, I don't know if you guys remember when Sacramento won Summer League, what is this, two summers ago now? 
And then later on that year, they were sort of a playoff team, right? The opportunity for a team trying to establish culture, trying to learn how to win, like in a small sample size, the in-season tournament does provide that. And I think we are seeing teams like Indiana, who, um, forgive me for looking over my shoulder at the television, (laughs) um, are trying to take an opportunity of winning something and building what they hope to be um, a formidable organization. All right. So you've always had artistic chops, you know, fashion, you know, (laughs) earrings, big hoops, all that stuff. Right. Those tournament floors, Monica, any feedback, positive or negative? The first week of the tournament or maybe it was the week prior to I think it was the week of Adam Silver did an interview on ABC. Good morning, America. And he used the word arresting when talking about the floors. And I was like, wow, they are certainly, they certainly do arrest your attention. And that is a neutral, does not denote positive or negatively, but they definitely catch your eyes. Personally, I hate them. <laughs> I, I Personally, I hate them as well. And haven't really seen any of them that I like at all. But here's, I think, the NBA is really, really good at like improving things from year to year or, you know, this year it's this next year will be this. They have a few things, obviously with this tournament, they have to work out. We can talk about some of them, but I got a funny feeling the floor is going to be one of them. I mean, the trophy, the NBA cup and all that's cool. That should be every center circle, but I think, wouldn't that be enough? Well, I think, Again, with Adam Silver listening to that interview, the idea that you're flipping channels on the Tuesday and Thursday and are like, oh, wait, what's going on? I buy that. I the Personally, while the colors are a little bit of a headache, the thing that frustrates me the most is the baselines for me. Just the line in the same color of the whole court that spills over. I, can we at least get a baseline delineation? I think that would have made it more palpable for me personally. And that's what I was going to ask you, Monica, as a former player yourself, do you think the players are having to adjust to this as well, just as much as many of us fans are at home watching on the TV screen? Yeah, I do, Ross, but I think they are the highest level of athlete for a reason. The one thing that does ring out, and Bruce, I know you're a Celtics fan, is uh, Jalen Brown calling out the courts uh, (laughs) when I I can't remember who slipped or whatever, but Jalen calling the court unacceptable and blaming the special parameters for in-season tournament. Um, I'm with Bruce, though, in that I think there will be a meeting of the minds. I don't mind the cup in the center. Having to explain the correlation on the colors to me is a little bit of a headache. The one part I will say that I did like was Washington's, which is actually a teal and a gray. And the teal is supposed to represent monuments once they start to rust and they turn teal, teal, which I don't I think is too much. But I did like those particular colors. It's the best no, thing they put on the floor all season, Monica. That part. <laughs> <laughs> now, before you, we go ahead, Will be. I'm just going to ask you. Uh, I know being around the Knicks, you're you're um, close with uh, probably Coach Thibodeau or whatever. I'm just kind of curious what the get the what do you think the coach's reaction to this in season tournament um, is? It's a it's a change for everybody, obviously for fans, for players, and certainly for coaches. Well, B, I think that's a great question. And I think it goes back to what is the state of your program or the state of your coaching tenure, right? Tom Thibodeau has been very clear. He could care less. He keeps saying it's a regular season game. Like, we have to treat this like a regular season game. He has said that on any night that a question about the end season tournament has come up, whether it's a Tuesday, Friday, or otherwise. 
when asked about the point differential, it's a regular season game. Like, he's not for the nonsense. He's just trying to win. I shouldn't call it nonsense. We're all team NBA. But he's not for it. He's just trying to win. Now, counterpoint, we obviously saw Joe Missoula get into the point differential thing deliberately, right? And so I just think it really speaks to where you are as an organization. I will say that I thought the Knicks courts were going to be problematic with the orange and the basketball being orange and it being too much. But the Knicks had a monster comeback versus Miami on that court, so cheers to them. <laughs> <laughs> now, along those same lines there, Monica, of course, uh, with Tom Thibodeau, uh, you shared with us before we started taping here tonight that you're already in Milwaukee and you're going to be working uh, the game tomorrow, the Big Eastern Conference matchup, New York Knicks visiting the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, what's your early take on this game, and uh, are you excited for tomorrow night? I'm really excited for tomorrow night, Ross. Two reasons stand at the top of the list. R.J. Barrett was not available the last time that the Knicks came to Milwaukee and lost to the Bucks. I think it was 110-105. Jalen Brunson had 45 points, three points off his career high, which is 48. And they made this really tremendous push late to make it a ball game. And then Dame Lillard goes into closure mode. And I can remember being on the radio broadcast with my partner, Pat O'Keefe, and we kind of looked and were like, well, I mean, this is what that guy does, right? I am curious about what R.J.'s um, return to the lineup in this matchup potentially brings. Now, he hasn't been shooting a three ball particularly well over this three-game win streak, but he does give you a little bit more size um, and some versatility, so I'm curious about that. And then second, Milwaukee's kind of been up and down. Like, they got the win versus Atlanta coming into this one, but they lost to a DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine, less Chicago Bulls. So I'm wondering if a defense that has established its identity carrying over from last year, that has been the thing that I have touted most about this team not making any drastic moves is the continuity. So you got the Knicks that are already very clear on their defense and who they are on that side of the ball versus the Milwaukee squad that is kind of figuring it out. Does it make for magic if you root for um, blue and orange skies? We'll see. Well, how about that second game uh, uh, on uh on Tuesday night, the uh, the Suns and the Lakers. What are you What are you thinking about that one? So I was just in Phoenix Friday for Nuggets Suns, and uh, the Nuggets took care of business in that one. Katie had a very uncharacteristic second half performance, although he did pass Moses Malone to move to ninth on the all time scoring list. Will be right yep. ninth. Yep. Um, I I think the Suns are going to take care of business on that one. Devin Booker didn't play Friday night. Devin Booker's obviously been playing tremendous. All of our favorite basketball think pieces are now about him as a point guard. And I'm not mad at it because he's been <laughs> fantastic. But I also think that there's something – what's the word I want to use? There's something sort of liberating about the way that Phoenix is playing Um I have not been able to, and Ross, I know you're the tape guy. I can't really break down exactly what the Frank Vogel system is, but it does feel like it is catered toward the athletes that he has. KD obviously is playing really well. So is Devin Booker. Um, You look at a guy like Yusuf Nurkic, who was raining threes in the first half of that game on Friday. Like, I just think whatever he's got going, it fits that group really well. And so they're playing with like an ease and a lightheartedness. And you got to give Devin Booker his credit to me as stepping up as a defender. And Katie, I think we don't talk about Katie as a defender, but when he decides to use his length in that way, you got to acknowledge that as well. So I think there's something good happening in Phoenix. I know from my friends that are in that front office that, um, what's my guy from Michigan State? I can't call his name. The Matt owner, the new owner. Yeah, Matt is all in on trying to win, including on the women's side. Um, yep. Christy Tolliver was announced as an assistant coach joining that staff. 
So I, there's something good, I think, happening in Phoenix. I actually asked Katie, in fact, yo, you've been to the mountaintop a couple of times. Like, what similarities do you see? And of course, he's, we're taking it one day at a time, which is wise. But he did say he really likes the mentality and the mindset of that team. The Lakers, to me, you can't ever, you are starting to be able to count LeBron out a little bit more, but you still always got like, they got LeBron and they got AD. But I just think Phoenix is similar to some of these teams that are looking to start winning and feel that. So there's a little bit more urgency, I would imagine. Any questions? I definitely got some here. I mean, when it comes to the Lakers, obviously I do think that window is closing for LeBron James. But how how big is it that they're starting to get healthy? Anthony Davis has been healthy most of this season. They just got Jared Vanderbilt back. Cam Reddish is back on the floor after missing a game or two there. So how big is it just kind of having the depth on that team and kind of being able to kind of bring bring some help off that bench to provide some energy when some of the stars you know need need that rest in, in, in a pivotal game like tomorrow night? I mean, Ross, you know, that's huge, right? Like, I think any champion will tell you that there's a sprinkle of luck in there, right? Whether you talk about health or timing, whatever, people's babies not being born on game day, the whole bit, right? Like, there's a little bit of luck involved in this thing in totality. I think for me, even healthy, the thing that concerns me with the Lakers is health. We're talking about health over not even just the 82-game season, but the, what is it, the six weeks that we go into the postseason? And historically, when it comes to Anthony Davis, it has just been so fleeting. And now I'm not the person that's going to yell and scream about him supposed to be taking over the driving wheel from LeBron James. I think AD is who he is. You're going to get a 30-point performance, then you might get a 10 and 15 rebound performance, and that's just who he is, right? Like, it doesn't mean that he was not productive. It's just not as glamorous as you would like, per se. But I I really like Vanderbilt. I don't know what to, to decide on Cam Reddish. Austin Reeves has to continue to prove that he's taking the next leap as a guy that's going to draw multiple defenders, or you at least have to think twice before you leave him to go and guard to send a second defender. Um, Rui Hachimura is to me is a prototype NBA guy. I was actually really excited for the Wizards when they drafted him. Obviously that didn't pan out, but I really do like his skill set and his, his build. Um, Ty Lue is obviously well-respected. I just think, and I am guilty of being one to lean into the youth a little prematurely, the Memphis Grizzlies situation still hurts my soul, but I just think the league is starting to trend toward either guys that are historically sustainable over the long run, LeBron, or youth that has the upside to take a hit and keep on bouncing and figure it out in real time. Hey, Monica, uh, I want to get back to the Suns for a second because you touched on the the health factor with the Lakers and how they're um, – relatively healthy. Are you surprised at all the way Phoenix is starting to get it together without really any continuity to their regular lineup there, you know, without Bradley Beal, he comes in for a game and then he's out for now three weeks and Devin Booker actually missed both of the first mm-hmm. two games with the Lakers because of injuries. And he sat out the other night with an injury and he came back, you know, the fact that they're able to do what they're doing right now with basically KD uh, handling the bulk of the uh, duty. I know he didn't play against the Knicks a couple weeks ago, but in, you know, they just really they haven't played together one minute yet. That three, it's kind of surprising that they're still able to do what they're doing. So this has been a question for me. Where will be, I guess, the last three years on any team that KD is involved. Like my gut is continuity matters, but then it's like, but does it? Because that guy just <laughs> makes it so easy for everybody, right? Um, I think 
that Katie's experience in Brooklyn has uniquely prepared him for the ebbs and flows of what may or may not happen in Phoenix based on injuries. I will also add to that, that again, like last year, I think I was in Phoenix when Katie slipped in warmups. I think, yeah, pretty sure I was there um, and ended up not playing. But post game, I remember asking Devin Booker what excited him most about the opportunity to play with KD. And the first thing he said is the space, like the space that's going to be on the floor because you got to guard that guy. So this to me is like this incredible marriage of two guys that just need room. Like they just need space and they're going to have space by being on the floor together. And then the rest of it is fluid. I think in this case, it really helps them that they've got a very simple and I don't mean simple as a slight. I mean, simple in a profound and effective way. Five man and Yusuf Nurkic, who's going to set a screen. He's going to roll hard. He's going to rebound. Every now and again, he might pull up for a three, right? Like if he's got a mismatch, him and Jokic had a fun little duel going. But like he's not trying to be this third piece of the pie star guy. Now, what I do think will be interesting is when Bradley Bill gets healthy. But based on the way that this thing has started, I mean, we've all covered basketball long enough to know that it's not looking like he's just going to be miraculously ready for 50 games and not miss any more time. Um, so that may be just become a Frank Vogel substitution pattern in terms of how that team develops their continuity or their chemistry. Um, but yeah, I mean, Eric, Aaron, not Aaron, Eric Gordon actually said after shoot around that, you know, chemistry is important and they would all like to be on the floor together. But I tell you what, man, book and KD, like if you got to give me two guys to roll out the ball and maybe haven't had a ton of reps together, like, I think I'm, I'm taking my chances with those two. All right, uh, that's going to conclude our first quarter, guys, and it's time for our second quarter, and we're going to get into the team that Monica is covering the closest right now. That, of course, would be the New York Knickerbockers in a little bit more detail. The Knicks are 12-7. and All of their losses have come against quality teams, okay? But most of their wins have been against lesser teams. They're 3-0 and against Charlotte, and then when you put in Washington, Atlanta, San Antonio, and Detroit, they're 8-0 and against those teams. So their schedule is about to get much more challenging. Have they built up enough momentum to maintain their 50-win pace? Are they ready for this? I mean, they have been a good road team so far. So what's your thought? I mean, are we looking at a 50-win team here? I said at the beginning of the season we were looking at a 50-win team. I'm going to continue to stand on that because let's go. Go next, right? <laughs> um, I do think that as this thing continues to unfold – there's a qualifier. First, let me just say, if Jalen Brunson is not an all-star and an all-NBA player this year, it will be an absolute sham and travesty. Like, I don't want to talk about it. There's nothing to discuss. Put him on your ballot, like, period. The second part, though, is for as good as Jalen is, the Knicks, to me, still need a guy that can score in three dribbles or less. Like, NBA prototype, quick first step, two-dribble pull-up over the defense. You can't get to it because of their length or two dribbles, hesitation, get into the paint, absorbing contact, finishing at the rim. Like, and I don't think that that's a secret uh, in the front office, in the fan base that is very smart, intelligent, and astute. And of course, the players, they're going to play with what they have and who they are. But there is a step missing when you start to get into clutch time and the athleticism. I mean, we're back. I'm back in Milwaukee now. That's exactly what happened the last time here in Milwaukee. Um, now, having said all that, I'm not the type just to chalk up athleticism to equaling wins necessarily. You've got an incredibly cerebral point guard, a godsend as far as the Knicks organization is concerned, and Jalen Brunson. You've got Dante DiVincenzo, who's cut from that Villanova cloth, as well as Josh Hart. Emmanuel Quickly, who selfishly may be looking to get paid next year, but has elevated his game as well. And then if Julius Randle is back to all NBA all-star caliber, they were able to grit out 
the 40 plus wins last season. Do, do I buy that their continuity pushes them to 50? I think there's a strong chance that I, that, that happens. But what happens is the last four minutes of ball game just ugly. It's like it's a lot of pounding the rock. It's, you know what I'm saying? It's hopefully getting to the free throw line. Um, and to me, if Mitchell Robinson can continue to be the force that he has in, has been inside the paint, like you're looking at an all-defensive team caliber defender. So you can defend. You're going to have a chance. Now, back to Mitchell Robinson here. Uh, the biggest thing that kind of stands out when I look at Mitchell's game this year comparison to the rest of his career is he's averaging just under two fouls a game in just about 30 minutes a night this season. If you look back at those career averages over his six seasons, the minutes have increased each year while the fouls continue to decrease. So it's been a very impressive trend for his career. What can you talk about kind of just his development? Uh, how is he like as a person? I know that we do have a follow-up question in regards to one that just came out, but just just what's your overall take on Mitchell Robinson? Is he really taking that next step in, in, in his development this year? I think for Mitch, what we're seeing, Ross, as important as any skill that he has worked on is just the level of maturity and comfort. Mm -hmm. He knows the system. He understands his teammates. And this year in particular, he's playing with balance, which I hadn't I didn't know that that foul stat was as clear as you just pointed out. But it only reiterates what I've seen all season in that literally, y'all, he's staying on his two feet. Like how many, I mean, y'all didn't maybe watch as much Knicks ball as I did last year. Maybe you did, Michael, uh, Michael B. Um, or how many times last year was Mitch on the floor? And I'll be like, bro, get up. Like, why are you on the floor? Um, literally this year he has played with so much more balance. Obviously a tremendous shot blocker. The opportunities where the team seeks him out as a scorer, far better results when the passes are high and toward the rim as opposed to bounce passes and a bunch of traffic. But that's neither here nor there. But he's playing with so much more balance and confidence. And he came in low-key, like, kind of shredded coming into the, the beginning of this season. I didn't even really pick up on it initially. My colleague, Wally Zerbeck, was the first person I was like, yo, look at Mitch. And I was like, you're right. Because when I saw him at content day, he was kind of goofing around and just talking about not sleeping because of his newborn. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Monica, does does the shooting concern you when it comes to the Knicks? They're, they're just not a good shooting team from uh, – Either from three point range. I mean, the first meeting with the Bucks, they got outscored by thirty points from the three point yeah. line, and inside three point range, they're one of the worst teams in the league. It's just does going forward. It, you know, they didn't have great shooters last year. They just made a you know, living on the offensive glass, which they're doing again. Mm -hmm. It seems like. But does that concern you at all when you're talking about when you think of this? It team? does. It does. Like, and frankly, you've got two shooters that come to mind that see quality minutes, and that would be Quentin Grimes, who's in the starting lineup, and Emmanuel Quickly, right? And I, they're, the statistics on what they're shooting from three probably teeter around what JB is also um, shooting. I haven't – I wasn't with them the last four games, so I need to look at the updated stats. But those two in particular have to be able to hit and hit consistently. I, I do know that RJ has shot dismally from three in the last three games, but he's always kind of been a little bit streaky from behind the three-point line. So – you hear Tibbs talking about getting easy baskets for them. And I think my first thought when I hear easy baskets are transition, right? Like opportunities in the paint where you have the chance to beat defenses back before they can load up. But I also think that easy has to be when the ball is moving because of how challenging it is sometimes to get quality looks. Sometimes the Knicks offense definitely gets sticky. 
But when the ball is moving, you have your best chance to create some of those easier looks. And to me, it's a combination of guys just not hitting and a little bit of not great shot selections. Okay, I want to go backwards uh, to Mitchell Robinson again, because we've all heard the story, or many of us have heard the story, that is, about him welcoming his his old high school coach into his home uh, following the death of the coach's wife. Now, first of all, number one, you got to tell Dave Roberts, that's your pregame feature on Christmas Day, and you should be the one to go do that piece, okay? I'll send him an email if you don't, but I mean, that's an amazing story. It's just a wonderful thing. So tell us, you've been around Mitchell for a few years. Can you tell us something about him as a person that we should know? Because to me, I saw that story, and I'm like getting choked up. It was just a beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, Well, first, Dave, they moved me to Miami, so I have Philly Miami Christmas Day, so there's that. (laughs) But I do agree that that's a great uh, feature <laughs> idea. Um, I think, let's see, hanging around Mitch. <laughs> I really like Mitch. Um, I think in that piece, you got to see a snippet of who he is and that he wears his heart on his sleeve. Now, sometimes his heart is not always warm, open, and fuzzy. Sometimes he's not in the mood, and he'll tell you that too. But he he is honest about who he is and how he feels. Um, and... He's got a big, generous Southern heart. Like, this is a tremendous story, but I don't know if you guys remember last offseason, um, his dad went missing for a stretch. And he, yep. he was, was using social media to try to help um, locate his dad and the whole bit. So, like, he's in New York, which is a big city, but at, at his heart and to his core, like, Mitch trying to go fishing and get – literally, he drives this big, giant pickup truck on, like, super souped-up Southern wheels, like a monster truck, right? Like – so I would just say of Mitch, he is who he is. He's a really genuine dude. He likes to have a good time. He's got a great laugh. But if he's not in the mood, he's not in the mood. And he's not going to make you guess how he feels. Now, Monica, last question I have for you here is on Jalen Brunson. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, he is a all-NBA player, should be on the ballot. I couldn't agree more with that. But just generally speaking, and now be honest, has his impact in New York surprised you? Just oh, how big it's been? A hundred percent. And I, it's funny. <laughs> the first time. Okay. So I met Rick, before, his dad, Rick, before I met Jalen and Rick was kind of joking with me. He's like, I heard you talk of trash because I was of the mindset that the team did not need two small guards. Like Jalen and Donovan Mitchell to me is two small guards. Like I, I don't like it. So Rick and I have had these incredible basketball conversations about what two small guards looks like and blah, blah, blah. And he's, I'm learning so much from Rick. I think he's an t- incredible asset not only to this team, but obviously helping to build and create who Jalen is to this day. But beyond that, when this thing was still sort of percolating before it was done, I can remember on MSG, we had a show called MSG 150. And I'm arguing with John Wallace, Syracuse John Wallace, that like, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, this guy's going to be worth all this money? Like, are you sure? He played behind Luca, like, eh. And John Wallace looked at me and was like, Mon, when did he drop 40 plus or whatever it was? I was like, in the playoffs. He's like, that is when basketball is being played at its highest level, and he showed you what he can do. I have no doubts. Not to mention that John also knew Rick and played with Rick when they were in New York together and has known Jalen since he was a kid. But he's absolutely proven to be right. And so having had the opportunity to have some conversations with Jalen far away from basketball, we did an event in San Diego right after the Team USA got back from um, the, the competition this summer. He is very mindful of leadership. And he is never going to skirt the work. He always says the magic is in the work. And I think that is something that 
is undeniable when you look at folks that have been able to separate themselves and make themselves part of the elite class in the NBA. They do the work. Yes, they are incredibly gifted, but they do the work. And so Jalen has far exceeded expectations. That deal that I know some folks were questioning seems like a pretty good deal to me. I'm very happy with it. Um, And I'm just excited to see what his future and career is going to continue to look like in the league and where he can take this team. Absolutely. That contract's definitely paying off for New York basketball right about now. But Mm -hmm. uh, we've gone ahead and reached our halftime buzzer. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break and come back with you for the second half. And we're back with the start of our third quarter. Now, Monica, since you are on our show tonight, uh, very thankful that you're joining us here tonight. We wanted to kind of discuss a little bit of, of your journey. Obviously, you were a former basketball player yourself, got into broadcasting, spent some time as a teacher. You've, you've kind of done it all at, a, at, a, at an early age. So uh, we wanted to kind of highlight that for a quarter, learn a little bit more about you and for our listeners that are going to be seeing you tomorrow night and Christmas Day out in Miami, uh, just to have a better feel for who you are. So my first question for you is, who's had the biggest impact on your career? Oh, man. Oh, that's a tough question, Ross. My first instinct is my parents, just because they held yeah. me down when it was no career. Um, they Whether it was literally living home, living back at home with them or encouraging me that it's going to come back and keep working. So I definitely have to give a shout out to my parents first and foremost. And then I actually would say that my fortuitous balance with ESPN came courtesy of Pat Lowry, who has left ESPN since, but she used to run uh, certainly women's college basketball. And if she wasn't 1A, she was 1B on college basketball in general. She calls me on a Wednesday from a number that I don't have saved, but I'll never forget because I just finished paying bills. And I don't know about y'all, when you broke and you just paid all your bills, like, Who's calling me now? Let me let me just tell this bill collector that if you look at my record prior to the last 12 months, I'm good about my bills and I got y'all when I got it, but I don't have it right now. So I answered the phone and she introduced herself and I go, oh, I know who you are. How can I help you? Turns out she needed someone to fill in on the ACC Women's Tournament that weekend. I was able to go crush the assignment. Um, and she's like, well, you'll hear from me when we start the ACC Network, which was supposed to start in the fall. So I think this was like March and the ACC was launching in the fall. And that indeed did happen. And so my first year, first two years really at ESPN were ACC Network covering women's bas- women's college basketball. Um, and then <laughs> similarly, don't I don't forget this March either. I remember being like, whew, that was a long, like, that was a long run. I'm tired. Like, it was actually when COVID was hitting. It was kind of before we knew how severe it was. It was like, all right, well, I'm going to enjoy this week at home while we, you know, regroup because I'm tired. I've been ripping and running. Um, but at the same time, I had shot an email to Jose Fernandez, uh, Bruce, Sports Center crew. Oh, I gotta check. Oof. I have to go back and check my email, emails. I don't want to mess up his name. But I had shot an email to the lead over Sports Center at the time, and he was like, "All right, we're gonna give you a shot on the seven a.m." And one of my friends was a Sports Center producer, so she had been advocating for me behind the scenes. End up crushing the 7 a.m. Sports Center and talking NBA. And what I thought was about to be like the downward chill thing just skyrocketed to like doing all of these different shows talking NBA. And I'll never forget that producer was Fernando. I apologize. Fernando oh, Lopez. Fernando Lopez. Yeah, yeah, great guy. Fernando Lopez. He was like, Mine, I'm telling you, your phone's going to not stop ringing now. Like, we're copycats at ESPN. <laughs> once, once somebody sees you're good, everybody wants you on. And he did not tell a single lie in that regard. But I'm very thankful for that. 
um, a lot of my ascension happened in my parents' basement during COVID. And that, um, obviously, a, sort of a tragic time. And I don't take lightly the folks that were imp- impacted through the pandemic in drastic ways. But for me, in my parents' basement at home and my family managed to navigate that pretty healthy, it, it was it was surreal almost. Yeah, you know, when we were doing buckets, boards, and blocks during some of that time, you used to have your pops come on the show once in a while. <laughs> and pops, pops was just a riot, man. I mean, you could see, you could see where he was. I mean, he was so proud of you, obviously. Yeah. But but you could see, like, you know, all right, I, I can see a lot of this man in 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 Monica here. Uh, but okay, so over the past three to four years. Mm-hmm. You've become a supernova. I mean, there's no other way to say it. But you never, ever, ever took the easy path. You always embraced the grind. You never cut corners. You learned to be a classic Swiss Army knife. You have tools to handle every situation. It's really quite cool to see. So tell us about your mindset and the way you prepared yourself for the grind and really kind of embraced it. I mean, it wasn't easy for you. Mm-mm. I would not say it was easy, Bruce. And I say this a lot now, like, Nobody really talks about the stamina that's required once you start achieving your dreams. <laughs> because woo, I was like, oh, my God. Um, I think I'm thank you for calling that out, Bruce, because I was very mindful not to be pigeonholed. I was a women's college basketball athlete. I'm very proud of that. Indiana's up by two with 321 to go, y'all. Um <laughs> I'm very proud of my experience as an athlete, but even when I consider getting into media, I remember saying to my close friends and family, like, I don't want to just be an analyst. I want to go and get the tools so that I can be a journalist and a reporter. And so then I went on to University of Maryland, the Philip Merrill College of Journalism. George Solomon's still a really near and dear friend to this day. So it was funny as I was coming into ESPN, it was like, hey, you're, we're hiring you as an analyst. And I'm like, cool. One day, one of our hosts on ACC Network, Kelsey Riggs, who's a friend, she was sick. And I said to our producer, it might have been our um, coordinated producer above our producer level, I was like, just for the record, like, I have a journalism degree. Like, we, I did, I have reps as a host, as a reporter, like, I've done all this. And they're like, okay, well, you're in tonight, right? And I think they were surprised at how well it went. Um, So for me, it has been very deliberate not to be boxed in, because I think when you check a plethora of boxes, it is harder for you to be eliminated. And not that I'm operating from a place of fear, but I do think the versatility also helps you to perform better in each role because you know what the other needs. Like, I think I'm a better analyst because I know how not to step over my play-by-play person. I haven't done a ton of play-by-play, but like, I get it, right? I think I'm a better host because I know where the analyst's strengths probably are and where I maybe don't need to say something so I can allow them to say it and I can add a button to the end of it where they can have the meat and potato of the stat that really lands. So for me, the versatility has helped has, excuse me, the versatility has strengthened me um, in each individual role. Hey, Monica, you, uh, you know, for people that aren't aware, you grew up in the DC area, correct? And it went to Georgetown, as you mentioned, and, and then uh, later on to Maryland, can you talk about what, you know, I, I spent time there for years in that in Northern Virginia. So I, I oh, know, nice. It um it's a really good basketball area, a really good area for basketball between DC and Baltimore, and a lot of history, both at you know at the scholastic level all the way up to the professional level. Talk about what it was like to grow up in that environment and go to Georgetown, which had such a 
history, albeit on the men's side, more you know more popular than than anything else. Uh, talk about what it was like for to be around at that time. Man, world be like. I'm so thankful for where I'm from. And I'm sure tons of people feel that way, as you should. But I can remember, funny enough, as a kid being like, I'm not rooting for the Wizards. They're terrible. We have all these great basketball players in this area, and they stink. It doesn't make sense. I can't root for them. <laughs> so I now have this love-hate relationship with the Wizards because they are my home team, in fact. And they did have some good runs under the John Wall years. But I think for me, I will tell you, ending up at Georgetown – probably started as a kid and I didn't even realize it was happening. Going up to the Kenner League with my dad, watching various sports documentaries with my dad. My dad was at St. Anthony's um, for a year while Big John was still there before he transitioned to college coaching. So there were all these ties and these things sort of being steeped into me as a little girl that I didn't even really know were happening. Um, My mom swears that my dad had this grand plan that he wasn't going to let me go to a football school anyway. I believe that I landed on Georgetown on my own volition. Thank you very much, Dad. (laughs) Um, But I I think I've had incredible battles. And it's funny because, yes, the Georgetown men's program was more renowned. Like, we would go to men's games as a family, didn't really start checking out women's games until I was being recruited. But Rebecca Brunson, who was going into the Georgetown Hall of Fame this year, Georgetown Basketball Hall of Fame, she hooped at Oxon Hill High School where one of my mom's friends was the high school basketball coach, and she recruited me so, so diligently but my parents decided they wanted us to stay WCAC. And if we were leaving our small old um, church school, my mom wanted us to go to a girl's school. So it didn't necessarily pan out, but I was familiar with like Rebecca Brunson from Oxford Hill high school. Like she was there when Mike Sweetney was there and Mike obviously went on to be a Georgetown um, product. So I think for me, I take a ton of pride in the competition that I saw WCAC semis, maybe I think this must've been my sophomore year. Marissa Coleman, like who went on to win a championship at University of Maryland as a WNBA champ, recently retired from the WNBA. I remember like Holy Cross versus St. John's. She got cut somewhere in the game, y'all. And I'm a daughter of a ref, so I know the rules. She was bleeding and they were kicking our ass. Like, I'm not even going to hold you. Like, St. John's (laughs) was loaded. She was killing us. I remember like, Ruff, she got to get out. It's blood on her uniform. Like, she got to get out. Get her out of the game. So sure, she had she did have to get out, in fact, but they fixed it and she came back and we proceeded to lose. But still, like <laughs> um, whether it was playing against a Marissa Coleman or even the opportunity to go watch a KD, a Michael Beasley, like all these guys are who are sort of my contemporaries, um, pull up to Damathic Gonzaga, like it was just a fever for the culture. And then of course, my dad is a referee. Like this is before DC assault runs into its issues with Curtis Malone, right? Like Katie, Mike, Dolan Smith, like all these guys played, and I'm just in the gym because didn't pay to get in. I was with my dad; he's refereeing, and so I'm I'm just kicking it. So you got that happening on the men's side, on the girls' side. These are my contemporaries, truly, that I'm playing basketball with and against. And iron is sharpening iron. So I am so 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 incredibly proud of where I'm from and the opportunities that basketball has afforded me. Okay. So you're a Georgetown alum. Ross Geiger is a Marquette alum. You're oh. working with a rookie. You're working with a rookie at ESPN who's also from Marquette, fellow by the name of Doc Rivers. Any stories <laughs> about working with Doc since he's been on the team? So it's funny. I just uh, had Doc when we were in Phoenix uh, for the Nuggets game. And I just think Doc is great. Even when we Doc was still coaching the Sixers, I thought Doc was great. And I actually was at Georgetown with Doc's oldest son, Jeremiah. So, like, there is a little bit of a rapport there. 
But I remember last year I had a Sixers game and um, I can't remember Sixers PR, but they're like, yo, Doc wants you. And I was like, did I say something on TV? Like, he's mad at Like, what happened? <laughs> and he literally was just like, I just can't believe you're here and didn't come say what's up. So, like, we had a chance to chop it a little bit. Now that we're working together as colleagues, I'm constantly learning from all of our analysts. I think for me, while I'm thankful about having the opportunities to start, ooh, to start um, 112-105, y'all, 54.2 seconds to go. Indiana's about to do it. Sorry, Boston. Sorry, Bruce. Wow. Um, it happens. I'm, yeah, it does indeed. I'm super excited um, and diligent about the work and the craft of beginning to add game analysts to my repertoire. But I also am still learning, and I'm not going to shy away from that. Like, Doc probably has forgotten more basketball than I know. And so, listening to Doc, JJ, Doris, RJ, um, Hubie, like, I am still very much learning and hope to bring the enthusiasm and entertainment and education from my viewpoint. And so I'm really proud of that. Real quick story, though. um, I got engaged over Labor Day weekend, so I'll get married in the summer. And Doc was like, thank you, Bruce. Doc is like, um, what was the original number? He's like, how big, How much has it grown? And I'm like, it has in fact grown, Doc, but it ain't going to grow as, as much as yours, Seth and Callie. He was talking about Seth and Callie's wedding. It ain't going to grow like theirs, grew because my pockets ain't that deep. But you're right. And so we sort of joked about that. And then one thing he did say, and I shared this with my fiance, because I was like, both of our parents are plus 30 years together. And Doc was like, oh, that's a marriage built to last. Congratulations. I was like, well, thanks, Doc. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, we're going to shift over to our fourth quarter now, Monica, and we want to play a fun game with you. We like to call word association. So we're going to give you a name, and then obviously you will associate a word with that name. So I'll start us off here, and it's with another ESPN personality, Richard Jefferson. (laughs) Jokes. (laughs) (laughs) RJ is – oh, man. I love the way he sees the game and articulates the game. We don't always agree. That's what makes this fun. But he's always bringing energy to it. Um, obviously, his TikTok is legendary. He's always got jokes. <laughs> Amanka, here, here's one for you. Walt Frazier. Wow. Um, I want to – rhyme is supposed to come to my head really quickly. <laughs> smooth and fluid like Walt. Um, man, it's so cool, though, all of the things that MSG Networks does to acknowledge Walt's arc. I think if you are a young Knicks fan, obviously you didn't see him play in person, but you might skip over just how important he has been to Knicks basketball, to the NBA, to black athletes, like the whole bit. And Wall is just as cool. Like he's just as cool. I've had family come to games. Um, One of my aunts, longtime Knicks fan, New Yorker, she's like about to fall out when she, I'm like, just calm down. He's going to take a picture with you. But she's like about to fall out because Walt means that much. (laughs) to Knicks fans and to folks in New York. So he's just super cool, super smooth, super easy. One time he asked me if I sewed my own clothes because he liked the way I dress, which is a high-level compliment. <laughs> I do not sew my own clothes, but it was a high-level compliment coming from someone <laughs> as suave and debonair as Walt Clyde Frazier. Okay. Patrick Ewing. Oh, yeah. The GOAT, of, as far as Georgetown is concerned. I'm not going to start that. I don't want to start anything. Let's clarify. My personal... Boya Saxa, blue and gray goat, and just so kind. Like, people get a kick out of it because I still call him Big Pat because I was on campus with Little Pat. So, like, that's how we separated them. Um, I actually saw him in Charlotte two weeks ago when the Knicks were there. He is so proud of me, as I am as well of him. Um, his family's terrific. He's still such a kind and genuine man. I just love the game and the opportunities that have been afforded to him through it. Um, he's great. I, I love Big Pat. 
All right, one more round here. I'm going to start with one of my former workout partners in his short time in Milwaukee, JJ Redick. Wow, you and JJ got it in. Okay, um, I think JJ is such a smart guy, like smart basketball guy, but just smart guy too. Sometimes I, you might have to rewind the pot again to catch it all because he's just so smart. Um, but I really enjoy working with JJ. Um, he is a, a I'll tell you, since we mentioned two of my colleagues, I was like, RJ and JJ, that's, mm, I don't know how that's going to go. <laughs> but it's been a really good counterbalance because JJ is so smart sometimes. And I think he takes for granted the basketball of it all, the nuances. And RJ can like bring it back down to little digestible bites for the average Joe. And so they've worked really well together. Um, I really appreciate sort of JJ's vision for himself. Like he doesn't waste time, right? Like everything is a thing is a step to another thing. Oh yeah. Um, and it's funny. I kind of asked him cause we were talking about, I can't remember how we got in this conversation, but I asked him, have you, have you been able to figure out how to live in the gray? And he's like, I got better at it toward the end of my career. Because from what I had heard, JJ was very like neurotic, like everything had to be just so. And so it's been cool to meet this version of JJ. I don't know if the, you know, mid of his middle of his career version and I would have gotten along because I am not (laughs) neurotic, but this version of JJ I think has been really, really cool and great for the game and the conversations that he's able to have and provoke. Real real quick here, I just wanted to set the record straight. He was working out and I was not working out as much because every time I would pass him the ball, late night shooting, he, it would just go right through the net. So I didn't have to work that hard. It was JJ that was working hard. Nice. Go ahead. Go ahead, Bruce. All right. Last but definitely not least, LeBron James. Iconic? I know we get into the GOAT debate, and I – However antiquated it may be, I still tend to lean toward rings, and that means I'm leaning toward Michael Jordan. But in terms of, like, the things that LeBron can do, the versatility that he has, his basketball mind, the school that he's built, like, there's another level of icon in terms of impact and social impact that I think will have to be attached to LeBron James when it's all said and done. And of course, like the longevity of it all. Now, granted, we could get into a whole nother conversation over the fact that, and rightfully so, we're celebrating what LeBron is doing turning 39 this month. But KD been in the league for 16 years as well. Like Steph been in the league for, what is 14, 13, 14, something, something like that. Like the longevity thing, I think, may become a little more commonplace amongst the elite of this generation than we've ever seen before so i just think you got to celebrate it like you got to celebrate it and just in phoenix friday katie actually said because i asked him about it he's like the league just wants to label you old or injury prone after you get past a certain age and he's like i don't take it personal but it just speaks to how young the league has gotten but there are a handful of guys 34 plus that are still getting it done at a high level so if that's old sign me up for that (laughs) (laughs) with that we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break from the action and be right back with you for best bets. All right, we're back with my best bet of the night and uh, didn't have this planned, Monica, but we are going to get an early jump on Christmas Day matchup that you're going to be covering. That is the Philadelphia 76ers visiting the Miami Heat. 
Right now, the Philadelphia 76ers are the underdogs at plus money at the sports books. I'd recommend hopping on that for all uh, my bookies out there. Of course, with the uh, Kelly Oubre coming back for the Philadelphia 76ers here, he's set to return within the week. The Clippers wings that they acquired in Philadelphia are starting to gel. And uh, with their new ball club, and overall, I'd test my luck with Tyrese Maxey and Joel Embiid over Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler any day, despite what last year's playoffs might tell me. So right now, I would hop on the Philadelphia 76ers as the underdogs on Christmas Day, and be sure to check out Monica McNutt. That's going to be on the call for ESPN. <laughs> and with that that will do it for this edition of the 48 minutes podcast on believe presented by bet online monica we want to thank you once again for taking the time out of your night to join us here on the 48 minutes podcast it's been a pleasure hope you had some fun with us and uh good luck tomorrow night you don't have to hope i can confirm thanks guys for having <laughs> me this was a blast all right and with that that will do it for this edition Be sure to check us out next week as we'll be sure you're up to date in 48 on all things around the association. Take care, everybody.